So uh, last week, somebody, yeah, I thought so, um, asked if uh, I could talk about the Eightfold Path. So I'll be talking for the next um, something like 10 weeks about the Eightfold Path. And so it'll be a series and um, um, it really uh, partly comes out of earlier in the year I taught the Four Noble Truths. And, um, and the third, the fourth truth is the Eightfold Noble Path. And just to remind you, or if you weren't here and you don't know, the Four Noble Truths, which are the core of Buddha's teachings, Right? They're, they're the core around which everything is built in Buddhism and everything points to. Um, and there are, the truths are to be known and are, are interactive, right? And so that the first truth is that there is dukkha or suffering and suffering is to be understood. And the second truth is that there's causes to suffering and they are to be released or let go of. And there is a freedom or a cessation of suffering and that cessation is to be realized. And there's a path that leads to freedom and that is to be cultivated. That's the fourth truth, which is the Eightfold Path. And so the interactive component of the uh, fourth truth of the Eightfold Noble Path is it's to be cultivated. And cultivate, it's a nice word. It means to nourish or to support or encourage or develop. And so part of what we want to do over the next 10 weeks or so um, is see if we can nourish the Eightfold Path in your life. Because otherwise it's just a nice idea or a list. And it's, it's not, you know, maybe it's a little bit helpful as a list, but it's much more helpful when you start to recognize the components of the Eightfold Path in your life, and then you can live it and see what happens, because this is what the Buddha pointed to when he said, oh, how, when people ask him, how do you wake up? He said, practice the Eightfold Noble Path. And uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi said it this way, he said, the essence of the Buddha's teachings can be summed up in two principles, um, the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. The first covers the side of doctrine and the primary response it elicits is understanding, right? It brings understanding. The second covers the side of discipline in the broadest sense of that word and the primary response it calls for is practice. Somehow that seems like a really appropriate sound for living the Eightfold Path. It's because it's a wake-up sound, right? It's a siren. It's about, oh, wake up. And I often say this, and I like to say it, that in Zen they, they have a, when they call you to practice, they bang on a piece of wood and it says, great is the matter of birth and death, 
life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken, do not waste your life. And so I like that because it's pointing at the, the uh, preciousness of human life, of what's sitting here for each of us, what's sitting in each seat and what's happening inside and outside, right? And the kind of difficulties that we're hearing that are part of human life, and also the beauty or the, the magic of human life that is possible for us and for all beings, for consciousness itself. And when you read some of the old texts of the Buddha, uh, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is the last, not the last text, but the last story of the Buddha's life before he dies. He goes, he he's, has the intuition that he's gonna die. And so he starts going around a little bit to say goodbye to everybody. But of course, he's not telling him, oh, I'm dying, so I'm going to say goodbye. But he's going around and he's saying, checking in with the different uh, groups that have been practicing with him and that have developed over his some 35 years of teaching in the uh, 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 Indian range in Asia, and meaning the range of India and a little bit of uh, Nepal and Tibet around in there. And uh, yeah, and um, um, uh, he travels around and everywhere he goes, he gives a very much the same teaching. And the teaching has to do with um, the Eightfold Path and what's called Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. And, and he says repeatedly, oh, this is virtue, this is concentration, this is wisdom. And this is what we need to develop and live in our lives, right? And those are the three baskets of the, of the path, sila, samadhi, panya. <clears throat> and, and the Eightfold Path is grouped based on those three baskets of sila, samadhi, panya. But they're grouped in the opposite of the way that I'm describing them. They begin with panya, which is wisdom. It's a Pali word for wisdom. And, um, and so the first two parts of the Eightfold Path that we're gonna be studying both as an overview and then individually over the next 10 weeks or so, um, the first is right understanding, sometimes translated as right view, right seeing, or right knowing, right understanding. And then the second part of the path is right aspiration, or right thought, or right intention, or right resolve. And I'm giving you different translations because different ones will resonate with you. And so, the, and those are part of the wisdom basket of right understanding and right intention. 
And then the uh, sila basket is about our conduct, is about living the Dharma day by day, every, every day, everywhere, every part of our life becomes the Dharma. And three components of Buddha highlighted were right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. Then the third part is samadhi, which is the practice basket of the Eightfold Path, which is right effort or diligence, and right mindfulness, and right concentration, or the word is samadhi, right unification of experience. And the word that's important, I always think, to translate for everybody is the word sama. It's sama samadhi or, or sama sati, which is right mindfulness or right concentration is sama samadhi. Sama is the word that can be misunderstood because the translation we use and that I like personally is right, R-I-G-H-T. And, um, you know, partly I like it because I grew up with it. It's what I heard. A lot of times now you'll hear teachers talk about it as wise, right? Wise understanding or wise intention or wise speech or wise. And that, that's good, but I like right. And so I looked up right because it means it has to do with doing things in the right way or true way or an authentic way or a direct way or a beneficial way. And I looked it up in the Oxford English Dictionary and they said of a, of a way or a right means of a way or a course going straight to its destination. Right. Appropriate, exactly answering to what is needed or suitable. It also said, right, uh, is like riding a boat, finding the balance, right? Like boats go to, too far to one side, you want to come back. If it goes too far to the other, you want to bring it back. Which is very much in line with the Buddha's teaching of finding the middle way. Buddhism is often called the path of the middle way, right? And so one recovers one's balance or equilibrium, it says in, in the OED, in the Oxford English Dictionary. Right means to recover one's balance or equilibrium. And then this is the one I really like from the um, OED. Uh, it said uh, right means to bring into accordance with truth, to bring into accordance with truth. And that's, I think, very skillful understanding of what right means when we say right understanding or right intention or right livelihood or right speech or right action or right effort, because we want to bring it in line with the truth of what's needed, what's true, what's appropriate. What's real? And so the Eightfold Path is really about life as practice, in my opinion, right? What does it mean to live a meaningful life 
and what does it mean to live a life that expresses our deepest values and what's most important to us, our heartfelt values. And then of course, sila, samadhi, panya become the tools or the structure that allows us both to um, continue to wake up as we live our life and see what's true and what's not true, what's real, what's not real, and also how to express what's true, how to let the Dharma live through us and express itself in our lives. Um, And so part of this kind of teaching, the Eightfold Path, is that it's about practice, right? Remember that quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi said, the first part is about, uh, you know, uh, the understanding, right, of, you know, that there's suffering, there's causes suffering, there's possibility of releasing suffering. And then the Eightfold Path is about practice, about what does it mean to practice all the time, 24-7, is that even possible? And what kind of discipline does that take? And I'm somebody who likes the word discipline, uh, which comes from the Latin disciplina, disciplina? I, I don't know Latin at all, so if I'm pronouncing wrong, please correct me, um, which means instruction or knowledge. It's coming into alignment with true knowledge. And, uh, and discipline is also the activity that can, uh, uh, or the experience that provides training. And so part of what Buddhism offers is a training in awakening the heart and mind, awakening uh, in our lives. Because the Buddha always taught um, uh, many different groups of people, the, the monastic community of the nuns and the monks, and also the uh, householder community of the uh, uh, women and the men who were not monastics. And that, that was part of the fourfold sangha, is what it's called in Buddhism. Um, and this Discipline comes because we care about something. And really, if you didn't care about something, there's something you care about that even brings you here tonight. Whether you're a new student or you've been practicing for 30 years, there's something you care about that's important that you value. And so that's part of what we want to recognize which, and this is from one of my teachers, Hamid Ali, he said the desire for freedom, for liberation, for enlightenment, self-realization, inner development, whatever it is called, is not a response to a call from outside of you. The search is an intimately personal interest in one's own situation. It shows itself as questioning the disharmony, or I would say dukkha, um, one lives with. The stirring, the stirring 
come, must come from you, from your depths. You can use a system, practice, or, or, or a path, but ultimately is your life, your quest. The path is you. The path is you, your mind and your heart. The quest does not bring about improvement or perfection. The path does not bring about improvement or perfection. It brings about a maturity, a humanity, and a wisdom. And that's also an important discernment that Hamid's pointing at. It's not just about becoming a better person or the right person or the person we think we should be. It's about waking up to the innate wisdom that is here for each of us to discover. And that's not a simple task. It's not an easy task, actually. It can be a very clear task, but it's not just, oh, okay, now I'm going to do it, and I'll do it every day for 20 minutes, and it'll all, everything will be fine. It'll happen. Uh, the French writer Marcel Proust said, we don't receive wisdom. We don't receive wisdom. We must discover it for ourselves after a journey that no one can take for us and no one can spare us from. That's a very sober understanding of the way things are. And really, in the best sense. And this kind of understanding of what it takes and what it means to um, let our life become an expression of dharma uh, was also described by uh, a guy named Andrew Schelling. Uh, and it's in a book by uh, Molly uh, Aitken called Meeting the Buddha. And he's talking about, he says, about people walking on a path people walking on a path. He says, only the walker who sets out towards ultimate things is a pilgrim, is a pilgrim. Only the walker who sets out towards ultimate things is a pilgrim. In this lies the difference between a tourist and a pilgrim. The tourist travels just as far, sometimes with great zeal and courage, gathering up acquisitions like a bunch of adventures or a wonderful tale or two and returns the same person as the one who departed and returns the same person as the one who departed the pilgrim is different the pilgrim resolves that the one who returns will not be the same person as the one who sets out it's a very important part right here that I'll say a little more about in a second. The pil pilgrimage is passable. Oh, is a pilgrimage is passable, excuse me, pilgrimage is passage for the reckless and the subtle. Pilgrimage is passage for the reckless and the subtle. The pilgrim, and the metaphor comes for us from ancient times, must be prepared to shed the husk of personality and even the body like a worn out coat. The Buddhist dictum has it that the way exists 
but not the traveler on it. The way exists, but not the traveler on it. For the pilgrim, the road is home. Reaching your destination seems nearly inconsequential. And it's beautiful. I like very much what he says. He's using the pilgrim and pilgrimage as an archetype for us as human beings. The pilgrim is different. The pilgrim resolves that the one who returns will not be the same person as the one who sets out. And usually when we begin in Buddhism, that is not exactly what we're thinking. You know, I didn't think, oh yeah, I'm gonna be somebody totally different after I practice for a year or five years or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Um, but I am, of course, and I was after a year. I was a different person. And that difference is an important part of what is both um, rewarding and is also difficult. Because we tend to hold on to our identity. And one of the things any good spiritual teaching will do is help us let go of our identity. And it doesn't mean, when I say that, it doesn't mean we don't know who we are, or our name, or where we live, or, but it means we're not so attached to the usual sense of self, to the usual idea of Eugene, and whoever Eugene is today. Because whoever Eugene is today will not actually be Eugene in a year. And really, if we if we're even more if I was to be more accurate, I would say even in a month or even in a day, we're not the same person. But we're not used to recognizing that. And so we make pilgrimage and meaning our life becomes practice and then things start to wake up, we start to wake up. And in that waking up, we see, oh, who we took ourselves to be was a slight misunderstanding, that there's more to who and what we are than we imagined. And so giving ourselves to a way or a path becomes part of our practice. Here's another uh, version of practice and path. This is from the uh, poet, uh, Sufi poet. I don't, I don't know if that's true. Rumi, was Rumi a Sufi? Anybody know? Yeah, okay, Sufi, good. Uh, Rumi, pardon? I think that was a resounding response. Well, somebody yeah. said yes, yeah. 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 Um, so here's a poem from Rumi. He says, what is the path? What is the path? A self-sacrificing way. Same, it's the same uh, a thread here. What is the path? A self-sacrificing way. We let go of ourselves. A self-sacrificing way, but also a warrior's way and not for brittle, easily broken, glass bottle, bottle people. 
<laughs> I didn't say that well, a self-sacrificing way, but also a warrior's way, and not for brittle, easily broken, glass bottle people. The soul is tested here by sheer terror, as a sieve sifts and separates genuine from fake. And this road is full of footprints. Companions have come before. They are your ladder. Use them. He's describing Sangha now. You know, the road is full of footprints. Companions have come before. They are your ladder. Use them. Without them, you, don't, you won't have the spirit quickness you need. Even a dumb donkey crossing a desert becomes nimble-footed with others of its kind. And it's beautiful what he says because he's pointing at Sangha and we're all already in the footprints of others who have come before us, right? I, I didn't make any of this up. I mean, I'm making a little of it up, but, but I didn't, this, is, this has come down for generations, for 2,600 years of human beings. This has come down because there, there is a path, there is the footprints, and we do get to follow them. And it's one of the reasons why taking refuge as we did, we take refuge in Sangha. And it's not just where, it's because we're being given something. We've been given something by all these other human beings who've been practicing for 2,600 years. We're not alone. This is us together. But it means really committing to practice, to giving oneself to practice, to giving oneself to a way <clears throat> or a path. And Ken Wilber is um, an American. I don't know what Ken Wilber is. He's a writer. He's an interesting guy and spiritual something. He said, real spiritual practice is not something we do for 20 minutes a day or two hours a day or for six hours a day. Real spiritual practice is not something we do once a day in the morning or once a week on Sunday. Spiritual practice is not one activity among other human activities. This is the, there's the point. Spiritual practice is not one activity among other human activities. It is the ground of all human activities. It is the ground of all human activities. Their source and their validation. Right? It is a prior commitment to truth, lived, breathed, intuited, and practiced 24 hours a day. Beautiful, beautiful what he says. It's not one activity among other human activities. It is the ground of all human activities, their source and their validation. And so when we, when we engage the Eightfold Path, it also becomes the source of our practice and the validation of our practice. It becomes us uh, studying the Dharma 24-7 and also expressing the Dharma, letting it manifest 24-7. Here's another way it's put from uh, Stephen Batchelor. <clears throat> he says the, 
the resolve to cultivate this path, he's speaking of Buddhism, the resolve to cultivate this path becomes unwavering yet entirely natural becomes unwavering and yet entirely natural. It is simply what we do. Awakening is no longer seen as something to attain in the distant future, for it is not a thing, but a process. It is not a thing, but a process. The process is the path itself. We have not been elevated to the lofty heights of awakening. Awakening has been knocked off its pedestal into the turmoil and ambiguity of everyday life. It's a very profound, very deep what he's saying. It's so deep that you, you can't even sell this, right? Because it makes it so ordinary, so normal. It's not so... It's not way up there on the top of the mountain. It's right here in this experience, right? Awakening is no longer seen as something to attain in the distant future. It is not a thing but a process, and the process is the path itself. We have not been elevated to the lofty heights of awakening. Awakening has been knocked off its pedestal into the turmoil and ambiguity of everyday life. This path encompasses everything we do. It is an authentic way of being in the world. It is an authentic way of being in the world. And then the last quote I'll read you is from the Buddha who talks about the path and practice and the way and he says it this way, he says, by your own efforts, waken yourself. By your own efforts, awaken yourself, watch yourself, be aware of yourself. I'm adding in a little, my commentary is being woven in. And live joyfully, follow the truth of the way, follow the truth of the way, reflect upon it, make it your own, live it. Live it, that's key, live it. It will always sustain you. So that's a little bit of an overview of that Eightfold Path, right? We have some time for questions, comments, liking, not liking, agreeing with what I, something I may have said, or disagreeing, or giving another perspective. And then I'll have some homework for you uh, before you leave tonight about the, about the path. Please, come on up. You have to come up to the mic. Say your name. Oh, my name is Joshua. Hi, Joshua. Um, uh, so the path um, is this something like a sequence of things that we do one right after the other? Good, qu good question. 
Uh, wait, wait, stay oh, here. We may chat a little. Um, uh, yes and no. It's, it's listed like that, right? Like right understanding, right intention, um, right um, uh, speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right uh, mindfulness, right concentration. That's how it's listed. And so some people think, oh, the top is the most important, and then it all goes from there. Some people think, oh, it's all leading into right concentration. One of my teachers, quite, you know, monk for 40 years, he was like, oh yeah, it's all heading towards right concentration, because that's what leads, right samadhi leads to awakening. And so, so you could think of it that way. And then other people, oh, we're not in the other room, we're in the other room, see it as a wheel, and there's eight spokes to the wheel. And so, and, but in the center, the axle is empty. And so emptiness becomes the center out of which the different components of the path manifest and are learned. Right? Which is a little more how I think about it. I like the wheel very much uh, because it's not one, you can, any one of them can take you into all the other ones. Right? And that's been much more my experience. And emptiness is one of the three marks of existence? Uh, not exactly, no. No? Okay. No. But it's, it's, it's taught a lot in Buddhism. <laughs> And it's part of, it's close to one of the three marks of existence, which is anicca, right. right? Which is everything is changing, right? And there's nothing solid. So emptiness, it's close. It's, it's also understood a little differently. But, uh, but it means, yeah, let's, let's go with what you're saying, right? Emptiness means, oh, there's nothing solid anywhere. Yeah. Right. Everything's just appearing and different and disappearing, including our bodies, hearts, and minds. That's all that's happening. And from there, when we start to come into harmony with the way things are, we don't have to do anything. It's already doing itself. Right. What tradition is this wheel associated with? Is it Tibetan or? <laughs> I think it's the Eugene Cash we uh, okay. <laughs> no 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 it's it's associated it's I, I know it from the Theravada so Theravada yeah yeah that's how I know thank you so much sure, sure. okay please. So it does seem like something achievable, but 
possibly quite hard, like if, if he's not. Then. Well, I might not. I've, I love Bhikkhu Bodhi, but I might not agree with him totally. Okay. Um, yeah. And also, he might have been being very humble. You know, people don't like to say, oh, I'm enlightened. That's, it's, it's, you know, it's like, who cares at that point? If you are enlightened, why would you even say anything about it? And so, so he's be, and he's also, you know, remember, and I, of course, this is just my perspective, I'm saying right now, my, you know, also, he knows a lot of people listen to him. So he would rather say, oh, it takes a while, and it's doable, but it's not me, and, and, uh, but I do know people, right? And of course, there are, in the Theravada, there are different stages of enlightenment, right? There's four different stages of enlightenment. I would be totally shocked if he hadn't been through at least the first stage, and I'm sure he has been personally. This is my opinion, though. Right, I'm not saying uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi would uh, agree with me. We've disagreed before about things, uh, but he's he's a great guy, and um, and you know, but it's definitely possible, totally, totally, and not not even. It's yeah, and there and there are different stages in the in the Theravada. And then in other traditions, the, the enlightenment is understood in different ways. It's not even thought of as four. And Tibetans don't think of these four stages of enlightenment the way that Theravada does. Mm -hmm. And so it's different. And then in Zen, they just oh, they're already enlightened. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, it's just like rip up the thing and throw it away when you get people would get a certificate saying they were enlightened. And one of my favorite Zen teachers, EQ, he ripped it up and threw it away immediately, right? And so the, the more interesting question is, why, what are you asking about? Oh, I was just, uh, yeah, curious about that situation there, because this was a person that was teaching about Buddhism. And so his point was like, oh, is this how to get enlightened? It's hard to get enlightened. It was like not even legal buddy, so yeah. You know, don't get your hopes up. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> your hopes may not be what's needed. That that I ne I, I never think of it in that way, mm -hmm. but I do think of oh, what's your heart seeking? And for me, that's a much more pertinent question. Like, and, and we each may have different words that come, like may seek freedom or, or awakening or, or uh, peace or love, maybe, or compassion, whatever it may and trust that and then see what comes as you practice. Because that's, that connects your heart to the Dharma immediately. And I, I have a lot of faith in that. And so that's the other word that we could bring in here, because um, at least the way I'm hearing your, what you're saying is, should I have faith that this can really happen? Is this really possible? 
what, what do I have, if I can't have faith, if I, it doesn't happen for Bhikkhu Bodhi, then, you know, what, is this for real or not? I hear a little bit of that. I don't know if you have that, but I'm hearing it that way. I, I think, like for me personally, yeah. it's more that the activity itself is what's worth Yes. Not, right. Because all traditions, as you say, is like a moving target, so it's really not worth Right. much about it, just the activity itself is pleasurable and coming here is right. <laughs> it's a good use. But remember, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm just looking at what I read from Bhikkhu Bodhi about the path. Um, but, but I like what you just said very much. I mean, you know, it's it's a process. And the process itself is quite illuminating for us. That, I'm happy with that, personally. Thank you. Okay, sure. Thank you. And if you've never spoken here before, uh, don't, don't be shy. Even if you're shy, don't be shy. Meaning it's fine to be shy, but but speak up anyways, because it's your group. First stage of awakening, street entry. How would you, what characteristics does it have? How would you know that you had done it? Uh, Is it something to be yearned for? <laughs> you could yearn for whatever you would like. Uh, <laughs> it, po it points to another level of understanding reality that than the usual level we might experience. And so there's certain kind of uh, experience and non-experience that we're not usually familiar with. Right? Both the experience, yeah, I'll say it this way, the experience of no experience is not something we're uh, familiar with. And so that's something that is often in, t in the Theravada, one of the characteristics of stream entry. Okay. I'm still as confused, but it's okay. Yeah, no, it's okay. It's not, I mean, there's no, uh, um, a better way to understand it is, um, 
uh, it's characterized by peace, but it's not a peace because everything's the way you want it to be. It's a peace because you've touched into the nature of reality in a way that you're one, it doesn't always have that experience. And so practice has been uh, one of the means for that to happen. In the terror, this is very Theravadan what I'm saying right now. Yes, they're called stream entry. I, I forget the technical names. I have them, but um, stream entry, uh, once returner, non-returner, and erhat are characteristics of the four stages of enlightenment. And they, some of it has to do, I believe, but I, I don't know exactly, uh, with the mythology of the time and place. Right, you enter this stream, and then uh, uh, a once returner means you have one more. If you're a stream enter, well, you have seven more lifetimes before you're off the wheel of samsara. If you're a, a once returner, you have one more lifetime before you're off the wheel. If you're a, a, a once returner. Non-returner, this will be your last lifetime. And if you're Darhat, you don't care about that at all. <laughs> Some, something like that. Arhat means you're, you're enlightened like the Buddha. Right? So you're already off the wheel. Please. My name is Elise. Um, I'm thinking about how this if it's 24-7, how this would apply to your dreams? It's oh, a good, difficult um, question, yeah. Yeah, it's difficult for me. Yeah, so here, I'll give you a couple ways to think about it. Um, one is, you can, there is dream practice which is taught, and the main, there's two ways that it's taught that I know of, one is, you want to wake up in your dream and be mindful in your dream. It's like lucid dreaming, and in the lucidity of the dreaming, you start being mindful of your experience while you're dreaming. Okay, so you're still asleep. Yeah, you're still asleep, but you're awake in the dream. Okay, so is there a certain level of not being asleep, but just not being awake, but a certain level that you push yourself up or out of total, totally being asleep. Oh, okay, that's different. Yeah, so there's, maybe that's possible. I don't know that, okay? I'm looking for a tool. <laughs> right, right. Well, I don't know enough about how to teach lucid dreaming and that kind of practice. I haven't done much of that personally. But the other way to practice is as soon as you wake up, you pay attention to what's here. And that gives you information about what happened a moment ago, right? Like you're starting right now. And while you're going to sleep, see how long you can stay aware of your experience 
until you fall asleep. And that all, both of those practices do support the lucid dreaming part, right? And I don't know, I don't know enough to really know, is there um, uh, uh, a self-reflective awareness in pure sleep? which is part of what you're asking about, I believe. I don't, I don't know. So I'm using 24-7 metaphorically. Really, what I mean is when you're awake, pay attention. And, and then, of course, but some people, I don't know if anybody here does any, any dream practice, but people do, and they really very positive about it. And, you know, it works also. Well, I, I experience um, feeling better uh, when I'm awake, but dreams lately and as I've been getting older uh -huh. have been uncomfortable and fearful uh -huh. and uh, filled with anxiety uh -huh. that I don't have during the day. Yeah. So, and maybe didn't have when I was younger as much. Right. So then, as soon as you wake up, start practicing. And if you're anxious, be aware of it and just stay with it. I just read, read a great quote. I don't have it. I'll, I'll try to bring it next week about metabolizing suffering and, and feeling it all the way to the end. And that's what was, and so that's why you want to practice when you wake up with anxiety, you know, in their anxious dream, what's happening now? And if the anxiety's there, it's not a bad thing. It's there for you to wake up through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, the, and the natural reaction, I think, for me, maybe most, I don't know, is it's so either painful right. or uncomfortable is, forget it. Get, yeah, get rid of it. Get, get rid of it. Right. And, and in five minutes, if I got up to write it down, right. in five minutes, it's gone. Yeah, right. And so gone is okay, but you might see what happens if you stay with your somatic, kinesthetic, energetic, affective experience of the anxiety. And here, this is a very Eugene kind of teaching, but because it's just anxiety. It's totally uncomfortable, it's unpleasant, we don't like it. But, it, but there's nothing there except a feeling or a mental state. And that's part of what we learn how to be with in practice and then see what happens. Because you may, it may, it may be the unfolding of something that is important for you, or the metabolization of something that needs to be freed, and it needs your presence as part of it, as part of the uh, process of awakening. Yeah, no, thank you. Really good questions and and start to play with it and let's check in about it here and there and see what happens. Okay. Okay, Thanks. great. Okay. Well, I actually
actually I think that's a good good place to stop because that was good practice really um, okay so a little homework here's your homework so really what we're going to do is focus on the eightfold path for the next you know couple months um, um, so this week um, every day somewhere you know maybe at the end of the day reflect on your day and in what parts of your life is it easy in, in what where and when is it easy for your life to be practiced right and um, what parts of your life today felt like they were outside of practice what parts were part of practice and what parts weren't part of practice just to start to reflect and see oh yeah here I was really here I was aware I, I felt compassionate or angry or clear about it or whatever it was or no I was totally just lost in what was happening and 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 uh, mesmerized by what was happening so I wasn't paying attention to what was happening here mm -hmm. right and so we're looking at you know what parts of life um, um, were part of practice and what parts of life were outside of practice <clears throat> and then um, you know, or or let me say it this way: as you each day, um, are the, yeah. And then at the end of the week, we're going to look at the patterns that you might see happening. And I don't want you to. You don't don't have to do this every day. But at the end of the week, see were there any patterns about what supports practice in life, and what gets in the way of practice in life. And the, and the one thing I was um, thinking about this, and often people get very judgmental of themselves in practice. And so I was, uh, I remembered the Dalai Lama, who I met many years ago now, this has got to be at least 10, 12 years ago, who came to Spirit Rock and spent some time with us. And he's a totally great guy. I mean, very cool guy. And um, and uh, we went up. We were up in uh, one of the rooms, and we and all the staff came for part of it. Mostly, this was a teacher retreat with a lot of teachers and the Dalai Lama and, and some other people. And um, but this, we did something with the staff, and one of the people asked the Dalai Lama said she'd been practicing a while and um, and that she wasn't getting anywhere anymore right that she felt like she was at some kind of plateau or stasis in her practice and what to do about it and, and you know of course it got the room got really quiet because everybody feels that sooner or later in practice right that's very normal feel like oh yeah in the beginning my practice was good and now nothing's happening and so it got very quiet. Everybody's waiting for the Dalai Lama. And he said, he said, well, what he likes to do is reflect on the last 10 or 15 or 20 years of his practice. And then he sees, oh, some movement has happened. <laughs> and, and that's like a very mature way to think about practice. 
meaning it happens over time and in ways we might not notice until we look at the big picture. And so, just to say that, partly to be very kind to yourself as we begin to look at practice and, and the Eightfold Path and what we're doing. And if you see that you're not aware or not practicing somewhere, don't be hard on yourself. It's a good thing to see that. And then it'll already start to wake it up just by seeing it. Okay. So let's sit for a moment before we end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.